Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Before we begin, I want to recognize another one of the No Kid Hungry campaign's supporters, Food Lion. No Kid Hungry's work is fueled by the incredible generosity of partners like Food Lion. Since our partnership began in 2019, Food Lion's donated over $1 million to support No Kid Hungry as part of their larger commitment to donate 1.5 billion meals to individuals and families by 2025. You can learn more about our partnership with Food Lion Feeds by going to foodlion.com slash in our community slash food lion feeds. Once again, that's foodlion.com slash in our community slash food lion feeds. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's the conversation we love to have about food, passion, hunger, making a difference in the world. And uh, those topics bring us to many other related topics as well, uh, often having to do with poverty, with opportunity. Uh, and today we'll be talking about immigration reform. I'm here with my sister, Debbie Shore, uh, co-founder of Share Strength. Great to have you back on the podcast, Deb. We missed you the last one or two, but uh, I'm glad you're with us. Good to be here. And our guest is Raina Montoya, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Aliento, where she works uh, with community on a whole set of important leadership uh, development issues related to immigration. Uh, Raina, thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's so great to be with you, Debbie and Billy. You know, I love your background, Raina, uh, because uh, I know that you were both uh, part of uh, Teach for America's DACA advisory board, but you were also an Echoing Green Fellow in 2017. And way, way back when um, you were much younger, I was the chair of the Echoing Green Foundation and uh, helped get the whole fellowship started. So I was delighted to see that that was part of your bio. And I know that you're also a, a 30 under 30 social entrepreneur for Forbes magazine and um, quite a few honors have come your way. So it's, it's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, that's so wonderful to know. It's a small world. Who would have thought that I would have the honor to speak to the share who started the fellowship that supported me and has supported so many other entrepreneurs. So this is really exciting. Well, it's been amazing. I have to give all the credit to the staff there, and particularly to Cheryl Dorsey. Uh, sometimes a board chair, uh, you know, just bangs the gavel and uh, proves the uh, good ideas that others have had, and that was kind of my role. So uh, the team there really deserves the credit. But um, Raina, tell us where we're talking to you from. Where are you today? And uh, uh, let's just start there. I'm tuning in from my home today. We have a hybrid model right now at the, with everything adapting from the pandemic. So, so the majority of days I work from the office, uh, but today I'm home in, uh, in the Phoenix metropolitan area in Arizona. So it's a lovely, lovely day, a little bit too cold for my bones since I, I was raised in the Sonoran desert, but it's a pretty lovely day. Many people would say we're like at 63 degree weather right now. And that's cold for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm jealous. Let's put it that way. Anything below 70. <laughs> I'm talking to you from Boston. And Raina, tell us a little bit about uh, just ending up in Arizona in the first place. I, I, I think you were born in Tijuana and uh, migrated in, to Arizona in 2003. Uh, tell us about that, the reasons uh, you, you came to Arizona and, uh, and what that whole process was like for you. Um, my journey really began about being born in, in Tijuana, Mexico. I was born 15 minutes walking distance from the U.S.-Mexico border. So I didn't know that. I learned that probably like a few years ago already. Uh, so I didn't learn that until I was an adult. I actually had a very abrupt, abrupt uh, migration at the age of 10. was my first internal migration from Tijuana to Nogales in the Mexican side, which is like three hours um, south of where I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. 
um, for three years in Nogales um, through Arizona. I lived at, in the in-between space. I remember getting picked up on Fridays by my mom at 2 p.m. and we would drive to see my dad at uh, to visit him in Arizona since he migrated first. And then at 4 a.m. in the morning on Mondays, I would get on my uniform and we would drive back to Mexico so I could go to school. At 4 a.m.? At 4 a.m. in the morning. So as you can tell, wow. education was, was something that was ingrained in me in very different aspects of my life. Uh, but that was something that, that was part of my journey. And I mean, it wasn't until uh, way later when my dad got in deportation proceedings back in 2012 that I really learned the real reason of my migration story. Um, as a little kid, I would hear stories of my mom and dad talking, uh, but I could never really figure out the puzzle. I felt like all my life I was missing this, this little piece of the puzzle. And when my dad got in deportation proceeding, that's when I had to really have a tough conversation about why did we migrate it? And that's when I learned that my dad had been kidnapped by Mexican police. And there was a lot of trauma uh, that really pushed us for us to migrate. Uh, we tried to figure it out internally within Mexico, but my dad, every time that he would see police officers, his whole body would shake and he got pretty traumatized based on that experience that like any other father, he was just seeking the safety of his family and trying to protect. Well, that's something uh, that lives with you forever, I'm sure. Definitely. I mean, as a little girl, I, I, I like to be very open about this because as a little girl, you're confused. You don't know what's going on. And sometimes um, we don't know why, why our parents or or the adults in our lives make specific choices. And at that time, like there, there was a little bit of resentment. There was a little bit of anger that I was building. Uh, but later on, when I really learned everything my dad and my mom had to sacrifice, not only leaving their land, but being able to seek refuge for my brother and I, I, I had nothing but gratitude and admiration for their bravery and their courage to, to seek the safety of our family. Your, your parents are still, uh, I'm sorry, Bill, I was just wondering, your parents are still alive and with you? Very lucky. They're both alive. They're fairly young. I'm the oldest of three, and they still live in, in Mesa, Arizona, where we first migrated to, uh, to the States. Uh, I no longer live there. I'm a little older now. I have my own home, but I get to visit them every weekend, so it's such a blessing. Well, I think you're soon going to hear, if you didn't hear beforehand, before we started to record, how much my sister loves Mexico. Uh, but before we do that, and before I turn it over to <laughs> Debbie, um, let me just ask how everything that you've just described in terms of your, literally your journey, a lot of us talk about journeys in a figurative or metaphorical sense, but you literally uh, had this journey. And how did it all uh, build up to the to the founding of Eliento? I think for me, there's been different moments in my life that have really impacted me. I think one of them was migrating first internally in Mexico and then having um, an across-country migration within the U.S. My relationship with Mexico being in a border town was always very complex because I always had access to the U.S. I grew up with a tourist visa and a passport before they went into visas, and I remember like going to the Halo Kitty store in California, going to the to the San Diego Zoo. So I felt that uh, my experience was a little bit different than many of the reasons why other migrants um, 
can have that journey. So in a way, I always felt very privileged of having had that opportunity. And then yet is that that sense of sorrow and displacement of knowing that the place where you were born wasn't safe and that we literally had to escape. So I think that that really informed um, like who I am. And it, that's one of the lenses that I see the world towards like a lenses of an immigrant. I think that the other one is being in this in-between that I mentioned before when I came to the US, I was fairly young, I was in eighth grade and I remember excelling at math. I was doing really well. I didn't know a word of English. So um, English was a little tough, um, but math was easy because I could just do it. I did. I could decode meaning without having to know the language. And I remember my math teacher being a very, a very supportive math teacher and a champion. He really wanted me to go to honors math and I couldn't because in Arizona there was a law that that you were mandatory to be in a four-hour block in order for you to learn English if you were learning English for the first time. So I started seeing barriers like that that were surrounded by my immigration status or that I was being judged uh, by not speaking a language um, rather than my intelligence. So I started seeing those barriers at a very young age. Later on, when I went to high school, I learned English pretty fast. Even within that, it was this whole feeling of not being good enough. And that's, those were the stories that I was getting. It didn't matter that I did what my teachers advised me, getting a good GPA, doing volunteer and community service hours. At the end of the day, it was never good enough because I didn't have a social security number that was going to open up opportunities the other way that it opened up opportunities for my peers and my classmates. So I think that that really drove me to um, to start asking the questions why and what is something that I could do. And I got really involved in college as an undocumented student, came out um, in different campaigns, started doing a lot of community organizing at the school, creating awareness around the DREAM Act, and then uh, moving on into that, right? I felt like uh, I was doing all this organizing, helping my community, and my dad got in deportation proceedings. So I think that that was another big pivotal moment for me about I knew, I knew how to, like, organize a press conference, how to organize petitions and doing phone calls campaigns to get my dad out of detention. But I didn't know how to process the trauma and the pain and the emotional wounds that that carry. So I feel that uh, those different experiences really impacted my way of of moving in the world and wanting to support uh, younger students and children uh, that now led me to Aliento. As you mentioned, I'm a Teach for America alum. I had the honor to teach in my community and where 98% of the students were Latino and Latinx. So uh, I felt that all of those uh, couple experiences with my my healing medicine, which is the da- which is dance and the arts, um, I think that that really allowed me to to embark in a healing journey and also center the voices of young people that oftentimes feel unheard, unseen, and that we expect for them to perform academically without really understanding what are the support systems and guidance that they need beyond the classroom. And sister. And I, I, can I just ask one more thing and then turn it over to you, Deb? Because as I'm listening to Raina talking, my sister and I, Raina, tend to think of the same thing at the same time. So maybe I'm going to ask what Debbie was going to ask. But, but, you know, as I'm listening to you talk in this moment where, you know, the TV is showing these images of 
others leaving their homeland in Ukraine at the moment uh, and leaving everything behind for fear of violence and really not knowing where they're going to end up. When when you are watching that, when you're observing everything the world's observed for the last week, uh, I'm guessing you're relating to that in a way maybe even more powerfully than than many of us are. Yeah, if I can be very sincere with you, it's been very challenging. It's been very triggering because I have um, a lot of history around violence and especially created from, from, from the government itself, right? When police officers um, were supposed to protect and had that image in Mexico, but we were victims of corruption and uh, and targeting. And when I see these images of families and, and folks at Ukraine traveling, and also not only with Ukraine, right, like with what's happening in Guatemala and other Central American countries, it, it can be very triggering if I can be very sincere with you. And, and my heart weights heavy because I know the impact that it has on, on people. And sometimes when we turn on the TV or turn on social media on our phones, um, we see uh, dehumanizing images or we see kind of more from like a reporting perspective rather than acknowledging that our human lives that are at stake. Yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about something similar, not exactly that question, but along those lines, Reina, I... Um, I, I think about your life's experience as an undocumented immigrant and how it's, you know, impacted you and, and influenced you in so many profound ways. You've had to kind of find your voice and you've had to refind your voice. I listened to your um, TED talk earlier about all the different times in your life where you had to kind of reemerge and show leadership skills. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, when you think about all these people that are having to leave their country, um, how, how do you help others through Alianto who have had a similar experience to the one you have? How do you help them find their voice? And I'm, I'm, you know, I know in part it's through the art, but maybe you can talk a little bit deeper about how you help them find their voice. When I think about the work that we do at Aliento, for those people that might be listening that they don't know uh, Spanish, Aliento translates into breath. But when you give aliento to someone, it's like giving words of encouragement. And the whole mission is very simple. Uh, people, especially immigrants, are powerful, they're resilient, and they have so much to contribute socially, emotionally, economically. And oftentimes, we are only limited to see uh, what we know. Uh, in front of us, and especially those people that don't have that immigrant journey, um, they are only limited by what they hear on the news, and especially if they haven't met an immigrant themselves. But then yet, like what I see, I just see a bunch of brilliance and talent in our community. So the way that we really support folks at Aliento, it's to remind them that they have a voice, that they are powerful and that they belong, that they belong in this community, that they're making now, in, in my context, the U.S., their home. And, and what does it look like for us to be multi multidimensional individuals where we center not only our healing, but our leadership development? I think, as you mentioned, Debbie, 
um, I had to refine refine my voice many many times and tap into into my creativity and my resilience and find new leadership skills in order for me to survive. But then now, when I flip the coin and I think about it, what would it look like if I would have had that support? If I would have had that aliento and that encouragement at a very young age, and and be reminded that that I have value and that our lives matter and that we're worthy individuals, I think that probably my journey would have been very different. So I often think about like, how can we build those community spaces where our young people specifically, that they feel powerful, that they know that uh, they are enough, that they are worthy and that they're not alone in this journey. And there's like a whole community that backs them up and I and wants them see them thrive and follow their dreams, regardless of their immigration status. That is so, that is just so, important, Raina, we, it, it share our strength when we talk about why we focus on ending childhood hunger. And we talk about how feeding kids, you know, isn't just the right thing to do, but it's, it's the smart thing to do. If you want to have a, you know, nation that is strong in all the areas that matter, right. You know, education, you know, health, the workforce, having a strong work, workforce. And I think you can make exact, and you're making that argument now, but you can make exactly the same argument with immigrants who come to this country, all they have to offer, all of their talents, all of their skill, all of their potential leadership. And I would imagine that, you know, through Aliento, you are constantly showing them examples of people that have, you know, had huge contributions, not just to, um, to this country, but to the world. That's about right, Debbie. And I think that for us, we take a multifaceted approach where we, uh, where people center, that we're in the business of supporting people. And when you support people, <laughs> you have to uh, think about multifaceted solutions. And, and for me, it's imagining a world where we see immigrants, not only as the storytellers, but the strategists of their own lives. Like we have so much, so many solutions that we can provide to improve our conditions and to make our country and communities better. And I think that there's a huge power when we start with young people, especially uh, since they are not only the future, but they're the present, they're shaping families, they're shaping culture. So how do we invest in their healing and their leadership development and continue to increase those opportunities post uh, high school, because especially if you come from a mixed immigration status family, if you're a dreamer or undocumented immigrant, uh, there's real barriers to succeed and real barriers for you to attain higher education. So how do we open up more doors for our community for us to be whole rounded individuals? And just one other question, Bill, and then I'll turn it back to you. But how would you sum up kind of what the the biggest challenge is then? Is it... um, is it opportunity for education? Is it opportunity for employment? How, how would you sort of sum up what the biggest challenges are for the folks that you're trying to help? I think the biggest challenge is the lack of empathy when we treat, when we treat people that are different than us. I think that we see we see that lack of empathy in our classrooms that it starts very young age from excluding people um, because they don't speak a certain language, uh, from making unsensitive and and not competent comments that honor and affirm the diversity of identities and upbringings and backgrounds that can really pierce a little human spirit as they continue to grow. And we have to remember that our children 
uh, are going to become adults one day. And those, and those wounds, if they're not attended and they're not cared for, they're going to be manifested in different ways. So for me, I think that that's the biggest challenge that, that yes, there is a legal challenge, right? How do we document the undocumented? There are specific barriers to education about making it almost impossible for undocumented students to attain higher ed. So those are very tactical barriers. But I think at the end of the day, what really holds us back is that lack of empathy and lack of understanding of treating other people that don't look like us or sound like us very differently that translates into policy, that translates into more barriers uh, for them to succeed. Raina, most of us in the nonprofit sector uh, tackle challenges that are bigger than our organizations are uh, resourced to, to, to tackle. And uh, I'd love to get your sense of how many uh, people you actually reach through Eliento, how many you aspire to reach, uh, what do you think needs to be done to, to close that gap? Yeah, I'm really excited to share some like good news in the midst of so so much turmoil in our world that uh, we have reached and touched the lives of of thousands of people, uh, thousands of young people. Just last year alone, we were able to train over two thousand young people that really led the fight to change some of these inequities that that are coming from the classrooms and from their lives. So we work on a uh, on educating elected officials through our fellows. Uh, we have a fellowship program where we serve approximately 20 fellows a year and they've been really like our leading boys and organizing other young people where we have brought more than 300 students every year to create that awareness within elected officials and uh, now I'm really excited to share with you all that it is going to be in the 2022 ballot for Arizonans to decide whether dreamers have access to in-state tuition and scholarships just like their peers. And I think that that really, really shows the power of listening to our young people and mentoring our young people to really leading the way. Uh, and we know that they didn't do it alone, right? They were people like me who supported them along the way. Uh, we had to build allyships with educators, with uh, with business leaders and faith leaders that decided to come uh, to come and say this, let's leave partisanship aside. Let's uh, let's focus on the kids and let's focus on our future and what makes sense not only for students for education but for Arizona. So I'm really hopeful at this moment that uh, that we're in a pivotal moment that we are if we are successful or when we are successful, I should say in in, in November that we would be changing not only education access for, for our students in Arizona and our dreamers, but we will be changing and turning the page of, of being seen internationally as Arizona being a place of and an epicenter of so much anti-immigrant sediment into an epicenter of hope that even in, in the most difficult terrains, we can still we can still see hope if we really center people who are impacted by these inequities. So Reina, what did it take to get that on the ballot? That, that's an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. Of course, you got to get it over the finish line now, but what, just to get it on the ballot, 
What's the story behind that? Yeah, the story behind that goes with students like Deja and Darianne, who are undocumented students and DACA recipients, who were really concerned about the future and were coming to our arts and healing workshops and talking to us about how how much stress and anxiety they felt about the future and how how heavy it weighted on their hearts to know that that many many of their stories is about paying it forward to the sacrifices of their parents and their parents always instilling in them, like, you got to get an education. Uh, you got to be able to do it for the family. You got to be able to do it for, for all the sacrifices that we have made. And even though that's a beautiful um a beautiful feeling and a beautiful support from families. Sometimes uh, what families don't see is the amount of pressure, especially a lot of our young people's parents, um, they didn't go to university or college. So so almost 100% of all our students are first-generation students. So it was really hard to see them. And it just started like that, a small group of us, bearing witness. I was a junior in high school when this policy was passed that prevented and prohibited and banned undocumented students to have access to in-state tuition and scholarships. Uh, so it was people like me and my colleagues like Jose who we decided this, this has been uh, something that has created so much trauma and fear within our communities. And we're seeing now students like Darian and Deya who are going through the same obstacles that we went through almost 15 years ago. So we started organizing and started talking to young people and said, well, we can sit back or we can do something about it. We don't know if we're going to be successful, but we can try. <laughs> so our first event was bringing 230 students to the state capitol. And then that was back in 2019. Uh, we got a Republican sponsor who wanted to support our efforts. Um, we passed it in the Senate, but we never got a hearing in the House. So then we didn't give up. We, we continued to build coalition, a very diverse coalition of supporters. And we came back next year in 2020. And again, we were very victorious in the Senate. Everything was going really right. We brought even more students and more communities speaking about the issue. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so we that completely blew up, right? And we weren't successful. But I think more than anything, and why I shared so many details about this story is because students like Deja and Darian and ourselves, we didn't give up. So we came back again in 2021, stronger than ever, with many relationships with elected officials, both Democrats and Republicans. And we made it about our students and the impact that was going to have in our communities. And we were able to, uh, to do almost the impossible, right? Like in today's political environment, when do you see both Republicans and Democrats coming along together to solve uh, problems that are very complex like this. Uh, but we were able to be victorious and it happened because I feel uh, our magic or our secret sauce, um, I would say that it was leading uh, leading from the stories and the impact and the brilliance of our students and also uh, widening our, our coalition where we had... Um, people from different constituencies that you wouldn't think about from the LDS or the Mormon community, the Catholic community to students, teachers, educators, business owners, saying that this is something that they wanted to see change, not only for students, but for our future. So are people calling you a political power broker now? <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but... <laughs> I think they're going to. 
And, and Raina, along those lines, are you getting, you know, requests from other nonprofits who do similar work from around the country to either learn more from you or to open up services or to, you know, kind of replicate the work that you're doing there? Definitely. We have had a lot of folks reaching out in terms of like, how can they learn from us? I actually just received an email from a professor in California um, asking if we can jump on a call so we can brainstorm because she does a lot of work with young people as well. And how do we do that effectively and replicate in other parts? Um, I was just in a call with uh, with a friend down in um, down in the Midwest that also wanted to share some best practices on how to support the student population and the advocacy as well that can happen at community college, private institutions, because it, it can become a little bit complex when you're trying to navigate it from this lens. It potentially changes your role a lot because you're a statewide leader, but you could become, as Billy was saying, more of a national political leader on these issues. So I would I would imagine it, you know, it'll it'll just keep changing as you as you continue to be successful. Yeah, and with immigration, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury to just only be looking at the local and state government. A lot of the policy change needs to happen at the federal level. So even prior this, uh, prior this campaign for in-state tuition, like we, uh, when DACA was rescinded under the Trump administration, we took hundreds of people to the capital of the U.S. and we talked to every single senator, to the exception of uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell, who were in leadership. That time, so but we were able to talk to every single other senator multiple times, and and we got really close to some policy change. But more than anything, what we took away is that when you invest in our people, when you invest in impacted leadership, um, the results and the solutions go beyond policy. I saw a quote on your website embedded in an article that really struck me because I know I know addressing trauma is a really core strategy at Aliento. And the the quote was, if you haven't processed your own trauma, the cycle of hurting others discontinues. And I thought that was such a great quote. And it made me think a lot about what you're doing inside the organization to help people address and get past trauma. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how the art, you know, how that works with, with younger people, or maybe it's not just younger people, but I'm assuming it's mostly used for, for kids. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that quote. It's a little surreal that actually came from me uh, as I was doing that interview. I really love that quote. And I think that it, it, it goes back to that. I think that hurt people, uh, when we don't attend our own wounds, we can continue the cycle. Um, and that can be really harming, not only for others, but for ourselves. I've seen it firsthand, what it what it did to me when my dad was in deportation proceedings. Thankfully, after being nine months separated, like we were luckily able able to organize and get him out of detention. But during those times, like it, it created a huge amount of trauma within within my family. And I and I think about other children that that we work with, and uh, sometimes because we are not addressing these issues, because nobody us about how do you talk about deportation? How do you talk about family separation? And parents oftentimes feel that they don't have the skills or they don't want to 
um, worry the children. Typically, that's that's the comment that I get from parents is like, why are we going to worry the children? But what they don't sometimes are aware of is that the children are listening. They're listening and not because we're not talking about it. That doesn't mean that it's not going on. So the way that we have addressed it at Aliento is that we use art. Um, as you know, as, a, as an artist myself, that's something that has been my healing medicine. Undocumented people don't have access to traditional health care. Uh, it's very limited, our options that we have around mental health. So we wanted to really provide a place where people could process and really Add, add to their toolkit more coping mechanisms that they can utilize within their life to, to be able to cope with this very traumatic experience because migration can be very traumatic. And especially when you continue to face so many no's and that your, your identity and your sense of belonging continues to be, uh, to be questioned by others, by society, by politicians, it can be really damaging for people. So the way that we do it, we uh, have this model where we create arts and healing workshops and open mics that are solely focused for impacted communities for mixed immigration status families so some people might be undocumented some people might be citizens but there might be um, the children might be citizens and their parents might be undocumented so how it really impacts uh, whole families and we use art as a vehicle to heal so sometimes we use uh, origami or we do painting or we do dance for us to process different themes and be reminding them about their agency that they have choice even in the most difficult moments of of, of their lives. Reina, thank you so much. Uh, our, our time has uh, just flown by as it always does when we have great conversations. Uh, before we leave, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to learn more about you and about Eliento. Uh, do you recommend your website? What's the best place to go? Yeah, definitely. You can come to our website, uh, alientoaz, like Arizona.org. And then I would highly encourage you to follow us on social media. The website is a really good one, uh, one place stop where you can just find everything, all you know, the social medias, but definitely follow us on social media at alientoaz. Typically, that is where we have the most up-to-date information. You can find ways on how to get involved, how to support us uh, from afar, and how to join some of our community spaces. Uh, during the pandemic, we were able to expand some of our programming virtually, and we had people all over the nation joining us in. So hopefully, you can catch us at a virtual event. Okay. Uh, Aliento AZ, I'm going to be following you on your social media channels uh, as soon as we get off this call. Thank you so much. Uh, Reina Montoya, and congratulations on the amazing work of, of Aliento. It's really been a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much, both of you, Billy and Debbie. It has been a joy. And we have to stay in touch. And when you come to Washington, uh, I would love our staff to meet you, and I think you would enjoy meeting them. So, uh, you know, when your um, advocacy work takes you beyond uh, the state of Arizona, please come to D.C. and um, we'll, we'll roll out the red carpet. Oh, thank you so much. I would love to meet you all in person. So... Uh, follow Aliento AZ and also please uh, visit adpassionandstir.com for more conversations with thought leaders and people who are sharing their strengths just as Reina Montoya is. If you like this episode, you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can share it with a friend or rate it so that others can find it. Uh, our podcast, Ad Passion and Stir, is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive, which includes our friend Hunter Sense and Joanna Weber of Papanaw. 
with support from our team at Share Our Strength, including my sister, of course, Debbie Shore, but also Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, Kelly Griffin, and the whole team at the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, we're going to be back in two weeks with more stories of folks who are just doing amazing work and sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Thank you.